Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Open Floor. I'm Andrew Sharp, and on the other line from the Washington Post, Ben Golliver. What's up, man? Not too much, Andrew, man. I read your LeBron James passes Michael Jordan column uh, the other day. Very well written, but I got some serious, serious problems with it, man. You're going to have to explain yourself on this one. <laughs> Give the listeners your take, please. Um, okay. Uh, first of all, we should say this is all pretty organic because you called me and said, I want to start with the Lakers. We were not intending to start with the Lakers, but at this point, let's just I don't do... want to start with the Lakers. I want to start with your take, <laughs> Andrew, because this thing is just grinding my gears. Okay. I'm, I'm really curious uh, what your objections are. Here's the deal. I'm kind of tired of talking about the Lakers, but I think this was undeniably a big week for LeBron in L.A., so let's just do 20, 25 minutes on what's going on in L.A. and call it a funeral of sorts for this season, and we can move on to the rest of the league for the next five or six weeks. And, I'll, I mean, we'll pr- almost certainly break that promise uh, and end up talking about whatever's going on with LeBron along the way. But um, let's just lean into it, okay? We'll talk about LeBron and passing Jordan and whatever. And if you're asking me to summarize the column, okay. Um, well, you were just taking shots. I mean, you said it was a terrible night. I mean, it was boring. Oh, it didn't really live up to the moment. I might be putting words in your mouth, so go ahead and you know give no, us the accurate it, version. But you, you were down on it is what I'm saying. I was down on it, and I did not intend to write about it. Um, I have to say... Just because I feel like we're hitting a point where everyone is just sort of oversaturated with various LeBron takes and like, you know, God knows we don't necessarily need more LeBron Jordan arguments. Um, But I was just kind of shocked. I watched the game and was shocked by how depressing it was and and I'm I'm not sure how many people actually were able to watch the full three-hour game against the Nuggets but anyone who did like just watching LeBron kicking out to Mo Wagner and having Mo Wagner airball threes and you know he's out there with Alex Caruso and JaVale McGee and <laughs> Kyle Kuzma's not playing Brandon Ingram's not playing are, are they down injured? 20 most yeah. of the night right <laughs> It was just shockingly dark, and I think it speaks to where this season is. And, um, you know, LeBron passing Jordan is a big story, but to me, I think the moment would have mattered a lot more and would have been a lot cooler to experience if he had done it in Cleveland. And instead, watching him do it with this kind of skeleton crew in L.A., in front of fans who didn't really care. And in the middle of a game, he was getting blown out and blown off the floor. Like, it, it, it was just, I was taken aback by what a reality check that game was. Because it, it ultimately, in, in one sense, it underscores that LeBron is one of the three or four or second best player of all time. Like, he's in that category. Like, guys we are just never going to see again. And uh, and at the uh, on the other end of the spectrum, it underscored just how dark and complicated the next few years could be. And so that was my takeaway. I thought that was a bigger story than just him passing Jordan. What do you think? Yeah. So I don't really disagree with any of the things that you laid out there. I mean, I wasn't at the game because I was at Utah at this uh, you know management conference where Adam Silver was speaking. 
but I didn't have that vibe of like, oh man, the FOMO, like, oh, I really have to be there. I mean, it, there was kind of a sad, weird vibe to it. The Lakers fans didn't seem totally into it. Yeah. Uh, it seemed to matter to LeBron a lot more than it mattered to everyone else, which that frankly by itself is kind of sad. But I guess my point is this. I want to defend LeBron and the importance of his record here because I think we're so good as a society right now at focusing on these individual experiences. And this is kind of one of the themes from this conference, this Qualtrics conference I went to, where it's like, how do you uh, give fans or you know viewers at home like that feeling of, oh, this is incredible. I want to do this again. Uh-huh. And that that wasn't the feeling that was uh, taking place when you know LeBron is like you know giving dirty looks to his teammates for not getting the ball passed to him on the break when they're down twenty against a Denver Nuggets team that just seems like they're having the time of their life just smacking the Lakers and you know Rajon Rondo sitting on the bench like 30 feet away from his teammates I mean that is not really what we talk about when we're saying memorable experience you know like really keeping people's buy-in right but this this record's not about one night you know this record's about 20 years and frankly maybe even longer than that in terms of you know that's why LeBron in his quotes is going all the way back to his childhood talking about how inspired he was by Jordan I mean to get to 32,000 plus points, I mean, that is a lifetime of dedicated work, consistent health, excellence, evolving your game. So many things go into that. And I thought for the discussion after the fact to be so focused on the weirdness in LA, uh, so focused on, oh, is LeBron crying on the bench, you know, and, and what's he talking about? Oh, he'll never be Jordan. I thought that was actually kind of unfair to him. It's an incredible record. He is on track to potentially be the number one all-time scorer in NBA history. And I guess I just fundamentally disagree with this idea that the Lakers collapse is somehow a bigger story uh, than a major milestone moment in LeBron's career. I just say to LeBron, go ahead and cry, man. Like, don't put the towel over your eyes. Let it all out, you know, and uh, really soak in that moment and enjoy it because, uh, I think ultimately his legacy as a basketball player is going to be that consistent longevity excellence, you know, the eight mm-hmm. straight finals, potentially being number one all-time score, potentially being a number five, you know, all-time assist guy. And for someone who has used Jordan as a target for years, you know, in terms of yeah. who he wants to be as a player, who he wants to move past and all of those things to finally get it done. To me, that was a big deal, even if that, those nightly circumstances weren't that great. And I just thought there should have been more applause, more outside recognition of what LeBron did than there was. Uh, and I think it, it just kind of speaks to how focused we are on, you know, the the night to night or the hour to hour rather than, you know, the big picture, you know, wide view of 20 years of excellence. Um, yeah. Okay. That's interesting. I have a couple different thoughts here. Number one, I just want to say we don't have to get into the, the Qualtrics conference but I love that you spent the last couple days at like an alternate version of the Sloan Conference. Like while the entire NBA descended on Boston last week, you went to a completely different business TED Talk type conference in Utah. I feel like that's very on brand for you. I'm proud well, of look, you for remaining Andrew, consistent. <laughs> you go to that Sloan Conference, you have a bunch of people who are trying to win rings and you're going to have a bunch of MBAs who are trying to take your job, right? Uh-huh. You go to the Qualtrics Conference, you have a bunch of people who are just trying to get filthy rich <laughs> by analyzing <laughs> customer data and they're going to welcome you with open arms. And I actually met an Open Floor Globe member there uh, named Jonathan who works for Qualtrics. Incredibly nice guy. He was all in on our inside joke. So that was a uh, you know another nice uh, perfect you know cherry on top, and you also got to get a, a quick trip into I think you were at a national park on Thursday. Is that correct? 
Now, Andrew, see, you're, you East Coast guys who don't have real national parks have no ability to determine what's a state park versus like a local <laughs> exactly. park versus a national park. I probably park. wrong there. So where were no, you? I mean, I was at a, a just a random lake like off the side of the highway. Uh, but I know in, <laughs> in D.C. or Virginia, they'd probably call that a national park. You know, I yeah. understand like the scale of beauty is a little bit different. When you travel, Andrew, do you ever feel like when when you're on that plane, you're thinking like, man, I wish I had an extra day or two to to stay and and kind of enjoy where I had just been. Absolutely, all the time. When I left U- Utah, I was like, man, I wish I had another decade or two here. That place is just <laughs> beautiful. Like I I mean, it is just gorgeous. I think if we ever really make some you know real money off this podcast, the first yeah. thing we should do is get a cabin in Utah. I think that should be our goal. We could probably do some live podcasts, maybe write some manifestos from there. Just bunker down for the various seasons. I, I think we should you know maybe uh, you know pledge together here as co-hosts to make that our number one priority. That's fine with me. You know, I'm I'm into it, um, and I don't need to put labels on my parks and, and whether it's national, oh, state, geez. local. Look, the point is you were communing with nature and living your best life, and I'm happy for you. Um, I've always privately suspected that you are going to just go crazy and go off the deep end one day and leave the NBA behind and disappear to the Utah wilderness. So maybe that's an alternate way to construe your cabin plan um, after this podcast makes it big. Don't butter me up. I mean, what, what do you what do you have to say? I I my problem with your column was it was so focused on the short term, the here and now, and uh-huh. maybe not reflective enough of the scope of LeBron's accomplishment. And it may be for the story for the day after it happened, that's the right story to write. So maybe I'm not completely killing you for what you wrote. Right. But I just think there is maybe a larger point here, like a higher horse way of looking at what happened, where it's not as sad as it seemed, and actually it's it's one heck of an achievement. Yeah, no, there's no question. It's a it's a heck of an achievement, as you put it. Um, the, the issue for me, I think, is twofold. Number one, it's not as momentous an achievement as I think it may seem. You know, I, everyone knew that LeBron was going to pass Jordan, and it's not a huge surprise. And if anything, that was another reason I was a little wary about writing about it. Because it's just, you know, how cool was that moment ever going to be, given how depressing this Lakers season has been? And so it was sort of a no-win situation. But again, it was like tuning in to actually watch it. I was taken aback by just how dark it was. And then the other thing is, I think it did matter to LeBron. And, And whether it mattered to everyone else is almost immaterial because it mattered to LeBron And to have him have to experience it that way and in that context was really depressing to me. And it's like, I have not been high on LeBron all year long. I think he has handled this situation so poorly. He's he's been disappointing on the court. He's been disappointing off the court. And almost, I mean, the year in LA has been bad enough that like describing in granular detail, all the ways that LeBron has failed will make you sound like a crazy person as, and as if you have a vendetta against LeBron and Clutch and whatever. And that, that's why, like, I don't really want to do that, but it's just been a top-to-bottom failure. Like, the veterans he brought in have been disastrous, and then the young guys are completely alienated at this point. And, and, I just can't believe how poorly this has gone for him. 
Um, not to mention some of the games he's lost over the last two weeks where it's like, look, I understand the Lakers roster isn't perfect, but to have them go out and lose to the Suns and the Grizzlies and the Pelicans is just incredible. And I, and I get I, smacked. I yeah. mean, that's the other part too, right? And that's the thing where like, you talk about not really appreciating it in the moment. I think six months from now, we're going to look back at how poorly this went and how quickly it spiraled out of control and be amazed because I mean, LeBron came back from injury and they lost eight of 10, I believe, which it's just unbelievable. So no, I hear I hear you, but we get some of these late career things, you know, whether it's Kobe, whether it's Mike, uh, whether it's Carl Malone on the Lakers. I mean, this does happen. It's happening more quickly than we expected with LeBron. Yeah, we should. And, and, and I think we're going to look back in a year or two and have adjusted to the new reality and be like, OK, when he decided to go to the Lakers, that was kind of the, the end of the chapter as LeBron as the best player in the league where everything revolves around him. And now he shifted into a new chapter of his career. I guess my point is, if we fast forward 10, 20, 30 years from now, right, yeah. where we have the benefit of the perspective of time, and hopefully people in the future are going to care about history as much as I do currently, it might not happen. I mean, I'm, I'm willing to cede that point as maybe no one's going to care about these types of records and things. I just hope that there's guys like us who are making pilgrimages to St. Vincent, St. Mary, just like we made the pilgrimage <laughs> to Laney High School to re to recognize a lifetime of greatness for Michael Jordan. We're yeah. going to do the same thing for LeBron and who are going to go there and be like, man, here's a guy who was you know potentially top five all-time in assists, and yet he was also number one all-time in scoring. I mean, that's still in play for him, you know, passing a, a mark with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, which it, I grew up thinking was totally... Play. I thought that was totally untouchable when I was growing up, right? And so I guess my point is like we can we can dive into the muck of the Lakers mm -hmm. twice a week for more than an hour. I mean, there's so much material there, right? Yeah. But I do think there is a larger story at play here that might have gotten lost in the instant reaction to the sadness of one specific night. Okay. I mean, I'm not sure how much I care about the all-time scoring list anyways, in part because it's like Carl Malone is number two. Like this is clearly context is going to matter a lot in how we talk about any of these records. Um, and if anything, it's it's a category that rewards longevity and can sort of distort the way we perceive certain guys through the years. Um, but LeBron is phenomenal. And and my, my main point is that it mattered to him that night and, um, and even watching the game because the first half was such a bummer that I was like, all right, I guess I have to write about this. But then the Lakers began to make it close in the in the second half, and I was like, "Man, this is great! Like the 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 Lakers have to win this game because it's just it's wrong for LeBron to have this moment and have it happen. It, it's surrounded by the dregs of the league, whether it's Caruso or Javale or KCP or whatever, like." At the very least, I wanted him to have that kind of magical moment where they come back and win and everybody is like, you know what, this season has been a full-blown disaster, but, you know, ball don't lie. Like, the, the, the basketball gods were looking down and said the Lakers need to get this win. And then, lo and behold, <laughs> the Nuggets came right back in the fourth quarter, and it was a 15-point game yeah. again. And it was the, like, okay. The, the, the basketball gods are so over the Lakers, it's not even it's funny. The unbelievable. Other, the other reason, real quick, to just tie off this conversation, that I, I feel like we should prop up LeBron and give him a little bit of credit here is because Michael didn't. You know, I don't know if you saw the statement that he released, but the full statement was, I want to congratulate LeBron on achieving another great milestone during his amazing career, period. 
Yeah. I mean, if that's not the most quarter ass statement I've ever heard in my entire life. Yeah, but that's why we love Jordan. You know, I would expect nothing else from him. I felt he was being so pure, Mike, in that like he was trying to be the most Michael Jordan possible in that situation. And that's again where I go back to like LeBron should be crying on the bench. Le- Le- LeBron should be thinking back to the time on the playgrounds of Akron and really soaking in a lifetime's work. Because yeah. he's not getting credit from a lot of people who are freaking out over the Lakers' uh, you know, lack of success. And he's definitely not getting the credit from Michael Jordan. Can I ask you a question and just pretend that no one is listening to this podcast? We're in the trust tree right now. Do you think that LeBron idolized Jordan as much as he said the other night? And do you think he was actually crying on the bench? Because I'm not sure on either point. I've never heard Jordan. I've never heard LeBron talk about Jordan that way until Wednesday night. So I was thrown off by the tears part because now I'm thinking like, okay, well, look, I mean, this guy understands everybody's watching him, right? So that could be going a lot of different directions. I do think it mattered to him. It's not a shot at him. For words, I think he was trying to honor the moment and, and show people that he does know exactly what was happening and that he appreciated the gravity of passing someone as legendary as Jordan. So it's fine if he was just kind of playing along and playing his part. But as someone who's followed LeBron closely for almost 20 years now, I was like, wait a second. I've read every interview you've ever given, and I've never really heard you talk about Mike like this. Well, a couple of things. I mean, first of all, his post-game reactions where he just kind of like kept saying like, it's crazy, it's crazy. Like reminded me of somebody who's in a car accident is like trying to wrap their mind about uh, around what just happened. So I think there was some <laughs> genuine the shock. in the car accident? Okay, come on. You're, now you're just taking <laughs> pot shots. Uh, no, I think there was some genuine shock and surprise and, you know, people were making fun of his pregame tweet. Like that seemed pretty genuine to me. But in terms of the comments about Michael, he's he's dropped and sprinkled it, especially at some various All-Star weekends in years past where you know, he was first trying to ramp up that GOAT debate and getting, getting people talked. Obviously, he talked about the ghost with Lee Jenkins. I mean, to me, it's clear the idolization factor because of his jersey number. I mean, that's just like the most basic way to look at it, right? I mean, it's clear yeah. that that guy played a, a very central role uh, in his life. And I think everything that it kind of came out, um, you know, after in the aftermath of that, talking about playing on the playground, the kind of inspiration that Jordan was, like I, that seemed like in line with things that he had said previously, maybe laying it on a little bit thicker than than in the past. Uh, but I thought I thought it was genuine personally, and yeah. I don't. I think also LeBron's not just speaking for himself. He's not just speaking for his friends on that Akron playground. I think he's speaking for a generation of African American kids who all look to Michael with that same level of respect and the idea of like, wow, we didn't know somebody could be this big of a star who could captivate the entire world, uh, who could do it by playing basketball, and you know, just the the legendary hero worship that. Uh, has followed Jordan here for the last 20 you know plus years whether it's the sneakers and and everything else off the court so I think in a way LeBron was almost making a social statement too mm-hmm. yeah and and I think he's great at that and great at playing that role I do I think the ultimate lesson of LeBron this year because he just the way he's handled himself, off the court and in the media and with his Lakers teammates, it has not been great, you know, and it has not left him looking like a natural leader. And, um, and his public persona is, is in a weird place right now. And I think the lesson for LeBron and really the lesson of his career is that uh, 
on the court, he is brilliant. And off the court, he is perpetually trying to play a role and trying to inhabit a role of icon that doesn't necessarily come as naturally to him as it does to some of his peers. You know, like Dwayne Wade just kind of wears that naturally in Miami. And LeBron hasn't done it as much um, or hasn't done it as well in a lot of different places and a lot of different times. And the times when he's most adored have been when he's delivered on the court and um, off the court, it gets a little bit more complicated. And so if that is a digression that's completely unrelated to what happened Wednesday night, but if we're talking about like whether the tears were authentic or whether the Jordan stuff was authentic, I think it was kind of halfway in each case. And, um, and that's, an authentic reflection of who LeBron is, is he's, he's always kind of searching for the right message and understands the platform he has and really cares about the message that he's sending, which is a cool thing. I also sometimes watch it and I'm like, I'm not sure whether you're saying this because you really feel it or because you think it's the right thing to say. Yeah, but let's also again. I feel like I'm like his lawyer right now. We we <laughs> care I'm about not LeBron. LeBron. I'm just yeah, trying to no. have like an honest conversation about it. Yeah, and it's it's good stuff. I mean, we also talk about LeBron a hundred times more than we talk about Dwayne Wade, and we have for the last decade straight. And that yeah. scale here matters for sure because yeah. the intensity of the microscope on LeBron is so much different than even any of his peers can realize. Like. You know, Kevin Durant, I know he's wanted to be viewed as the best basketball player for what, like the last 10 years. And it feels like he's being, uh, you know, shirked kind of in that conversation. Well, look, man, like if you can't handle what's going on in Golden State this year, you have no chance if the entire, uh, you know, intensity of what we know, you know, what showing LeBron in terms of media scrutiny over the last decade. I mean, a lot of guys would have shriveled, would have fallen apart. And LeBron hasn't. He certainly has not been perfect. He certainly has not been perfect. I wouldn't, you know, his decision to go to the Lakers is not looking great right now. It's looking like it could really, you know, shift his legacy in a negative way. Uh, But he's held up a lot better than a lot of child stars in other industries. Yeah. And a lot of other athletes who have, you know, fallen in the face of much less scrutiny than he gets. Yeah, it's a really good point. And you know what? With the focus on Durant and Kyrie and whether superstars are happy. I've had a lot of complicated thoughts on that front as well. Um, And I think one of the things that is underplayed is that a lot of these guys, when you talk about the biggest stars the NBA has today, they are internationally famous to a degree that someone like Charles Barkley can't totally appreciate and the the level of fame they're dealing with and the the way it's amplified in the social media climate like is a big deal and they're basically all living like a Kanye West like existence and so if a few of them fall prey to misery <laughs> here and there and go through rough patches it actually shouldn't be that surprising and it's more remarkable that LeBron, who is more famous than anyone, has not really had that happen. And I think the biggest thing you can criticize him for is being too self-aware and too careful and too conscious of the way he's perceived, which is fine. Uh, but he does deserve a lot of credit for remaining stable as like kind of the bedrock of the sport. Because really, like we talked about it earlier in the week, everything's going to revolve around him regardless and to be kind of a reliable 
you know, leader at the center of all this is a huge deal. And I think he's a, a big reason the league is in a great place because of the example that he's set for guys over the last 10 or 15 years. So great. And to bring to bring that full full circle, that's exactly my point about the on the court. And I'm with you off the court too. On the court, we focus too much on that, you know, that one shot that he made to pass Jordan or the state of that game on the Lakers. In reality, we should have been focusing on the 20 years of basketball excellence. Okay. Off the court, same deal. We focus a little bit too much on the silly tweets or uh, the corny Instagram posts when he makes some random record after a Lakers loss and he's kind of celebrating himself. Or uh, we focus an awful lot, like a month of our attention on, okay, is he trying to get Anthony Davis onto the Lakers at the expense of his teammates? We focus less on the 20 years of stability as an icon you know, in, in the NBA and how he's carried that mantle you know, pretty darn well in the big picture. And I think that, that those are so both fair takeaways you, you, you lose to, me to come away from this bit, milestone. Though. I understand okay, that we're trying to, to, to tie off this conversation, but you do lose me a little bit because I, I think that LeBron has been appreciated like over the last five years and will continue to be appreciated over the next 50 years. And right now, this is about honesty and the way – this has played off the court and the way it's playing on the court. And if anything, I think people were giving him the benefit of the doubt for most of this Lakers season. And only in the last week or so have people begun to say, all right, look, this is a mess. And it's it's depressing for Lakers fans. It's awful for the young guys. It's awful for LeBron. And that's the main thing I, I was thinking on Wednesday night is like, look, Whatever you think of LeBron, I think Jordan is better than LeBron, and and I and we've been over that on the podcast. But he's one of the greatest players ever, and he deserves better than what he's getting in LA. And watching that play out, I was like, look, if this is how the final chapter is going to be, I wish he had just stayed in Cleveland because at least he would be appreciated by the people in Ohio. And like the reason he left is because he wasn't going to be satisfied with being the sentimental favorite. He wanted to go somewhere and continue chasing Jordan and continue chasing titles and build an entertainment empire off the court. And like, that's why he's LeBron. He has that kind of ambition, but it's shocking how much of a disaster it's, it's become in the meantime. Yeah. I mean, I think that he's been catching a lot of negativity really since the all-star break or since the trade deadline. And so maybe I'm just getting tired of it because yeah. I'm surrounded by it here in Los Angeles. But um, I did think that the the overall sentiment was like, okay, cool record, but look at Rondo on the side of the, on the, side of the bench <laughs> and all that. And like something like Rondo and like his you know, Instagram about gaslighting and all that, like we're not going to remember that. 10 years from now, right? We're going we're to not, remember but 23 think, versus 23. That's yes. what we're going to remember. And I think that that's going to be true regardless. Um, shout out to Rajon Rondo, though, for I think Rondo claiming that he's being gaslighted by the media really sent me over the edge and convinced me like that the entire NBA just needs to log off for a couple months because everybody has been <laughs> online too much and... Um, I really don't know where we're going to go from here after the Rondo gaslighting crisis of uh, March 2019. But um, should we answer a couple Lakers questions to kind of bid this stupid season adieu? Sure. Okay. So one is from Michael. Quick and simple question here. Do Lakers fans boo when LeBron passes Kobe on the scoring list. And I know this is a sensitive topic after we've just sort of 
tried to heal uh, whatever LeBron wounds have been open this week. Um, but what do you think? It's a it's a fant- uh, fantastic, fascinating question. So I'm speaking for basketball lovers as a whole with everything I've just laid out, right? Like we're yes. trying to keep the eternal flame of the sport. I am not speaking for Kobe stands, okay? Because like, <laughs> like I do not expect them to show the level of respect that I'm hoping that LeBron would get for passing Jordan uh, uh-huh. when LeBron passes Kobe because the odds are he's going to do it during another somewhat mediocre season. I mean, when you're looking at the Lakers' long-term outlet, uh, you know, prospect outlook, you know what? They're a 45-win team next year if things go really well. Um, yeah, I mean, maybe even 50, if they get maybe Anthony, 55. How are they going to get to 55? I mean, even if they get Davis, they got to strip the entire roster. LeBron's going to be a year older, a year less defense, uh, probably a new coach. Yeah. Um, I mean, here's I the know. thing. I think that the tensions in that locker room are probably realer than most of us even realize right now. And like, there's going to be a very different Lakers roster coming back next season and so i'm not willing to kind of write off the possibilities next year just because like lebron is too great and i also think that he hasn't looked the same since he came back from that injury and and maybe isn't as washed up as he seems right now so it's possible um but just on the kobe question i'm glad you laid it out the way you did because i felt like a basketball fan during that second half comeback watching the Lakers almost win against the Nuggets on Wednesday night. I was like, look, as a basketball fan, I want LeBron to do this the right way and to have this work out. And um, and I was actually very excited about writing the column from that perspective. And um, the Kobe stuff, though, and the Lakers fans, like, if anything, they've been more restrained and deserve a lot of credit this year. They've been more restrained than they should be because if you're a Kobe fan, like have some backbone, okay? Now is the time for takes and to say, look, I've spent the last 10 years as a Kobe fan listening to basketball media laugh me out of the room anytime I try to say that Kobe and LeBron are even in the same conversation historically. And look, LeBron is not delivering in LA, and I don't blame any Lakers fan who holds that against him and says, you've been the fake goat all along. Get out of here. I'm not here to cheer you passing Kobe. Um, I Yeah, so I, I hear what you're saying. I think that LeBron will understand all of this dynamic. I, I was going there with, you know, what's the ceiling of next year's team to try to set the mood for if it happens mid-season and they're like 500 again and yeah. Lakers fans are still up in arms because they haven't made the playoffs in, in going on six years, um, there's going to be some real backlash, negativity potential, no question about it. Uh-huh. Um, but I think LeBron will be smart enough to manage it and, you know, do like a week straight of Kobe's uh, slurping interviews beforehand. You know, Kobe's the greatest Laker of all time. You know, he spent his whole franchise here. You know, I'm just sort of a, you know, renting in, in a legacy that he helped create, you know, make those kinds of statements. Yeah, I think he could kind of create a climate where he gets the polite applause and maybe every once in a while people yell out Kobe and say we want Kobe. But overall, it would be a positive reception. I don't think it's going to get to the point where he's getting booed. I'll put it that way. Yes, and I hope it doesn't. But again, I wouldn't begrudge any Lakers fans who want to take it that direction. And like LeBron, a a couple times this year, LeBron has been in the locker room talking about like lecturing the young guys and saying like, look, if you're 
if you're playing for this franchise and it's like Bron, you've been on that franchise for like four months <laughs> like right. called and haven't won anything well let me ask you this it would be insane if he did get booed i just, i'm not ruling it out i mean let's say they're like you know if they're way below 500, LeBron's not playing great. They haven't solved any of their big questions. They don't get a second star. Yeah. Uh, there could be some real backlash. I mean, the Lakers got booed off the court the other night. If that happened, how should LeBron respond? I mean, that is a PR crisis moment. Like, what do you do in your post-game interview when they're like, congratulations on passing Kobe Bryant, like fantastic accomplishment. Uh, the fans did not accept it. You know, what do you think? Like, well, how do you even handle that? I think he's spent the bulk of the last couple weeks in that same mode as the um, 2011 press conference where he said all, all these critics still have to go back to their sad lives tomorrow. <laughs> and, and <laughs> which I think, is true. Yeah, which is 100% accurate, number one. And number two, maybe the healthiest way to approach all of this because at the end of the day, LeBron is still the most famous athlete on the planet and additionally the, probably the most successful athlete of the last 25 years. So he could go live his life and live a great life and build his Hollywood empire and he's still ultimately coming out ahead. And so if he, in the face of booze from Lakers fans, if he just responds by posting his little celebratory Instagram and, and moving on, like more power to him. I think that would be healthy. Maybe he should just come out in Space Jam 2 promotion mode. You know, he gets like the hard-hitting question and he just goes, you know, I'm so excited about this project. This is a <laughs> lifetime in the works, you know, and he just like goes straight into kind of spin mode to try to dodge the questions. I don't know. That's a tricky one, man. Yeah. I, I would not envy him being in that position. I'll tell you that. Well, and the Space Jam 2 promo is actually going to be more complicated, I think, because that one, it's like, all right, so you're not Jordan and you're currently in like Jordan made space jam two at the height of the bulls dynasty. And I don't know if that he's Le LeBron's not going to get the benefit of the doubt on that one. And then again, this is why he needs to put Bronny in the picture and make him the centerpiece. And that, I think that that's the way to make space jam two work. Um, but let's move on actually to two more quick Lakers questions. The first is from Devante, who says, which season was more disastrous? The Steve Nash, Dwight Howard, and Kobe dream team or this current Lakers season? What do you think? I would go with the dream team, uh, personally. Um, to me, I was all in on the idea that if they could put their egos aside, the basketball fit could have been really good because people forget how accomplished Dwight Howard was at that stage of his career. I mean, he's coming off of like, you know, top five MVP finishes, defensive players of the year. Uh, you know, Nash was, you know, a, a questionable fit, but at the same time, you could imagine the potential. And it was also an injection of talent that Kobe needed, like at that stage of his career. So you were sort of conditioned to think like, hey, this help could could really make the difference and, and boost and extend, uh, you know, Kobe's like winning window. Yeah. And uh, I got suckered into a lot of that. I, maybe I was younger. Maybe I was dumber. I, I don't necessarily feel proud of that. I, I regret it a little bit. But I just thought the ceiling on that team was higher. I believed more in that team's ability. And then where they ended up uh, compared to those expectations was just an absolute mess. Yeah. And with this Lakers team, I, I guess 
the absolute best case scenario was somehow LeBron wills them to the Western Conference Finals. They never felt like a title team. They always were in that six to eight seed window in my eyes, you know, coming into the season. And they had some really major questions. And frankly, a lot of anonymous guys who shouldn't be playing as many minutes as they're playing, yeah. like built into their rotation. So uh, I guess I would I would lean towards the former. What about you? I agree. I think that the former is more disastrous given the ceiling we thought we were dealing with. I mean, you know, coming into that season, everyone was looking at them as a title team or at least a title contender um, and a, a potential foil to the heat. And I remember, you know, I've been out on this Lakers season from basically the start, but the 2013 Dwight Lakers, I was in until the bitter end in part because we had just lived through the heat experience where they had started slowly and everyone had written them off and said, you know, Mm. the the heat are broken. And we then watched the heat make everyone look stupid. And so I was like, no, no, no. I learned my lesson. Talent is all that matters. Steve Nash is going to get healthy. Dwight and Kobe are going to be way too much for anyone to handle. And this Lakers team is going to be fine. And they just month by month got worse and worse. And I, you know, I do miss following that season because at like every two weeks, there was a new report of like a players only meeting where Kobe confronted Dwight and like questioned his manhood. And like Dan Tony was thrown into the middle of it and um i mean it was just a really psychotic like seven month stretch whereas i think this lakers season while you know less disastrous in a technical sense has actually been more miserable to follow because they're just not really like it's not that funny and it's more depressing to me that this is how lebron's final chapter is going to play out and um and particularly like the AD saga took on its own sort of exhausting connotations for a lot of different reasons. Um, and so I, I would say the 13 Lakers were worse and more disastrous, but this one has been more joyless. Yeah, I think I agree with almost everything you said there. Also, there was the trailblazing aspect of how dysfunctional the Lakers were in 2013. Like we had never really quite seen that level of like internal reports and strife be reported yeah. on Twitter like regularly. You know what I mean? Like the the leaks really got to them and it became this kind of regular thing of like, "Oh boy, what's going to happen with the Lakers next?" Now we're like five years deep into that era with this Lakers group. And so the surprise factor when oh, it comes out, oh, this person's upset with this person or you know, any of the other kind of like, you know, soap opera turns that this team has taken this season, they just don't have that newness or that freshness, you know, in yeah. terms of what we were getting five years ago. I also think it's a reflection of the way the media has changed in the last seven or eight years. I think today there's just so much at all times that it gets to be a lot to handle. Whereas, you know, 2012, 2013, there would be kind of weekly reports on how screwed up that team was, but it wasn't an hourly thing. Whereas this, this Lakers season, it feels like they've died and come back to life like 10 times. Um, And then the last six weeks, it's just been, they're dead. They're even worse than we thought. They're, they're deader than ever right now. And so, I think we're all ready to move on. The last question, though. Brandon said, are we sure the Lakers aren't as incompetent as the Phoenix Suns? 
Come what on, don't thoughts? go this far. Come on, Brandon. Look, the Lakers did land LeBron James. We got to give them credit for that. They did play pretty well for half the season. We got to give them credit for that. The Suns are out here putting up billboards for LaMarcus Aldridge and still striking out at free agency. You know what I mean? They're they're not winning 25 <laughs> games for three or four straight seasons. I mean, that's basically what it boils down to. I think the Suns are as incompetent as any organization in the league right now. And, um, that, and the crazy part is they beat the Bucks twice, so I, I'm a little angry at them right now. <laughs> but uh, I think they're in different categories. I mean, okay. the gap is not as wide as we would assume or as we would have thought, you know, back on Christmas when Golden State's beating the Warriors and, you know, all the Lakers fans are going crazy up in Oracle Arena. Uh-huh. Uh, but it, there's still a gap there. I agree with you. Um, for anyone who hasn't heard it, Kevin Arnovitz ethering Lakers management over the final 10 minutes of uh, Zach Lowe's podcast earlier this week was A-plus podcasting. And you, I think you've talked about it in the past. It's every now and then you hear someone else and you're you're jealous of the level of podcasting excellence. For sure. And uh, Artovitz killed it on that one. The one thing I think is important to remember is that for a number of these seasons, the Lakers were best served by being at the bottom of the league and holding on to their pick because their pick was top five protected and then I believe top three protected and they did a nice job hanging on to it through those years. I think the one point that is going to be important going forward is the Lakers, like, the infrastructure of that organization is still pretty screwed up. You know, like they're one of their trainers is like the Kardashian trainer and their guys are always injured. I think that's the part that I would like to see explored is, you know, whether it's the training staff, the front office beyond magic and Palinka, you know, I think they may be more screwed up than people realize. And, um, and I also think the bus family relies on that team for their income and for their the the base of their wealth which isn't true of most successful basketball teams and I think that's a factor as well so the Lakers aren't the Suns but there are like really good questions you can ask about the way they operate and whether they are in in the same league as like the first class teams who are who are trying to build contenders like the, the Lakers are a long way from the Warriors infrastructure wise no doubt about it. And I think even if you don't want to focus on the behind the scenes questions about the training staff or otherwise, you just want to look at some of the trades and the moves and decisions they've made. I mean, they're wide open for second guessing right now. And I understand what they were doing, uh, most of them along the way. Yeah. And I actually agreed with how they uh, you know, laid the table for LeBron to get there. But there's definitely things that if you want to go back to the Russell thing, people are second guessing that Julius Randle, Brooke Lopez, like kind of the list goes well, on and on in terms it- of decisions that people are second guessing. And I think this summer, people are going to be coming for Lakers management hard if they don't get a second star because Magic's been promising it because Palinka's kind of been riding that honeymoon period when you're a new executive and everybody knows you as Kobe's guy and like you're kind of protected for a couple years. Yeah. Let's see how it plays out. You're trying to build a team up out of the lottery. If they make a coaching change, they don't get a second star. People are going to be looking at the Lakers front office with questions that they won't be able to answer. Yeah, you know, and and I think a lot of the questions are fair. To me, the biggest question I have is like, what really happened with the Lonzo pick? Um, Because they zeroed in on him pretty early. And it was, 
I, I don't know. It, it should have been more controversial than it was at the time because everybody just sort of made peace with the idea that like, yeah, you can't pass Lonzo. And uh, I don't know if that was true. You know, Lonzo's shooting was pretty sketchy, even at UCLA. Remember, there were, you're not a draft nerd, so you probably don't remember. But there were questions about whether he I was bene- benefiting from the certain balls that UCLA used. I mean, it was like, I don't know. He wasn't a sure thing. And I understand trading um, D'Angelo Russell because I don't think D'Angelo's career would have been nearly as successful as it is now had he stayed in LA. I think he did sort of need a wake up call to kind of jumpstart him and, and recenter him a little bit. And Julius Randle, I'm not sure you're actually going to ever have him like playing a significant role on a contender, but Uh, again, I'm not second guessing them. Just people are. And if you're going to go to the lottery again next year, because you don't land the second star, what's your counter argument to those questions, right? (laughs) Well, we got LeBron like, well, how long is LeBron going to carry you? Like, where is LeBron taking you? Right. I mean, I I think that the bill is coming due for those guys. That's there's there's no question about it. And that number two pick that they used on Lonzo, they could have traded for Paul George and they didn't. And they also could have used it to take Jason Tatum, who they then could have traded. Like if they had Tatum, I think they would have had enough to get Anthony Davis this February. But instead, they're stuck with Lonzo, who has been hurt for now half his career. Um, But the other thing that I would say is that, you know, a lot of people have pinned this offseason on Lakers management. And I think that's a more nuanced conversation because I think when they signed LeBron, I don't think they made any of those moves without significant input from LeBron and what he wanted and who he wanted to play with. And so people are like, how do you choose JaVale McGee over Brooke Lopez if you're building a team around LeBron? And I think the answer is that LeBron chose JaVale over Brooke Lopez. And so if you're criticizing Lakers management, what you should be criticizing them for is not having the backbone to say, LeBron, we just signed you to a four-year deal. We're going to do what's best for the organization, not what you want. And I don't know whether signing LeBron came with the precondition that he was going to have influence over the decisions they made. But I think that's the story with the Lakers. It's not that they're like the most clueless basketball people in the league. It's that they ceded a lot of their decision-making power over to LeBron. And he, like a lot of players, like doesn't necessarily have the best um, instincts in that, in that arena. Oh, that's well said. Uh, let's see what LeBron's got up his sleeve this summer because uh, there should be a real reckoning with all of their moves. You yeah. know, which, which of their offseason moves from last summer like paid off? Like actually worked out. Was there a single one? I don't and Rondo think so. has been an absolute disaster. I mean, I was kind of making fun of him earlier, but we should focus on his play. His play yeah. has been horrible. I mean, he's just been awful. Very tough watch. Um, you know, you go through the other veterans. McGee has been one of the worst centers in the league by a real plus minus this season. I think he's second to last the last time I checked. Uh, you know, Beasley didn't even make it the whole season. You know, Lance with the guitar. I mean, it's a it's a funny bit for the jumbotron, but that's not a player. You know, that's not like a real rotation player. <laughs> totally. Uh, Muscala is horrible. I mean, and a stretch five with one, zero stretch. Yeah, and here, like as much as you want to criticize, as much as I sort of put this off season, this past off season on LeBron, and because I think that you know, there's no way they sign Lance Stevenson without LeBron either asking for him specifically or saying, that's great. Like that, that's the type of player I want to play with. You don't sign Lance Stevenson without LeBron's blessing, but the trade, like the Muscala trade, 
that's the like LeBron doesn't have time to be looking across the league, looking at guys like Muscala. And that's one where you're like Lakers front office. What was the plan here? What was the goal? Flipping Ivica Zubac, who's actually been pretty good and was pretty good on the Lakers as well for Muscala. Like what was the upside? And, um, you know, (laughs) there's no cost benefit analysis. When Doc Rivers talks about Zubak, he sounds like a guy who found a hundred dollar bill on the sidewalk. Yeah, I mean, he has that level of glee and joy. They just I feel like they, rip, they ripped him off. Yeah, is what they feel like. <laughs> and part of me wonders whether the Clippers are laying that on a little thicker just to make the Lakers look even more clueless than they are, or maybe exactly as clueless as they are. Hey, can't blame him for that. But I mean, <laughs> his feelings seem pretty genuine. Like he's out there with a wide smile every time he talks about Zubak. Yeah. Well, to your point earlier, I do think a lot of this next step is going to fall on LeBron and his powers as a recruiter and his powers as a team builder. And those have always been every bit as important as his powers on the court. And so I'm rooting for him because I don't want him to go out the way he was on Wednesday night. I don't want to do this for another two or three years. So uh, I hope he finds a way to make this work, whether it's with Anthony Davis or trading for Bradley Beal or whatever you want to do to make LA less like soul crushing than, than that team has been for the last month or so. But um, we shall see, Ben. Should yeah, we move on? The big difference, we should. The big difference between the Suns and Lakers right now, like the Lakers, if they can't be good, they want to be relevant. They have been very relevant this season. We have to give them credit. I thought they'd be a lot more entertaining of a night-to-night watch this year. They were for the first couple of months. Remember when they were running up and down the court, you know, scoring 130 and doing all that crazy small ball stuff You know, back in November? It was an incredible era. Yeah. Since then, they've still managed to be relevant for the wrong reasons, but they've been relevant. Phoenix, not relevant. Goat poop does not count as relevance. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know. <laughs> Nothing is going to top the goat defecation anecdote of March 2019 this year, but uh, it's legitimately a highlight of the second half of the season as far as I'm concerned. But uh, yes, credit to the Lakers for at least being ambitious and dysfunctional enough to keep us entertained for the past six months. So um Keep it up. We'll see where it goes. But I think I'm Lakers out for now over the next couple weeks here. Let's move on to a couple questions at the end. Let's finish out the week. Pete says, let's talk about triple doubles for a minute. Russell Westbrook is averaging another triple double, and he's done what Oscar Robertson did in fewer minutes with a slower pace against better athletes three years in a row. And yet people continue to take this for granted because Oscar is looked as, or while Oscar is looked at as an untouchable basketball legend. Can someone please explain this to me? And Ben, I included this simply because I do think that this is a blind spot in basketball media where like we have so drastically overcorrected for Westbrook's MVP season that like, I don't think this is going to age well. We're going to look back at some of what Westbrook has accomplished and be kind of amazed at how good he was and how much he was able to do for the Thunder. And I understand he has clear flaws. And I think the thing that works against Westbrook is that his flaws are so much more obvious than those of guys like Harden or Damian Lillard or other guys who are considered sort of unimpeachable among NBA media types. Um, 
But Westbrook is incredible. And just the sheer force that he brings on a nightly basis, apart from the stats, is a big deal. And the stats are also a big deal. Like I don't think we're going to see anything like this for the next 20 or 30 years. Um, I think we will because of the way the game is going, the pace, the freedom of movement. I mean, we're seeing numbers from basically everybody. I mean, you go every single night, oh, Luka Doncic, he's got the same stats, you know, at his age as LeBron and Michael Jordan. Well, those kinds of things, Trey, Trey Young, you know, his numbers, yeah. like these rookies are coming in and putting up big time stats, largely because of the style of play. And so I think we're going to continue to see crazy stats for the foreseeable future, unless the NBA kind of corrects things back the other direction which I don't anticipate. Now, is anyone going to be able to do triple doubles three years in a row like Westbrook? Probably not. And I think the point you're making here is you know, we, we probably uh, are spoiled or we got bored after he did it once and, and now yeah. the accomplishment somehow means less or is perceived to mean less. It doesn't. It's still an incredible accomplishment. Uh, but I do think that we're not selling him that short because he's he's yet to prove that this style translates to postseason winning right yeah and until he does that there's he's going to be remembered as this ball of fury this unbelievable producer this consistent force the face of a team uh this franchise player beloved guy locally uh but doing things in a way that weren't necessarily the best way to do it um i don't think you can make an argument that him going out there to get a triple double every single night is the best way you should play basketball if you're trying to win at a high level Mm. and that's going to be an asterisk that hangs with him sure no one else can do it this way but should they be trying to do it uh, the way that he does it i think that's a very fair question and he's going to have to answer again in this year's postseasons and his previous answers to that question have not come off making him look very good or making his team look very successful. Yeah, it's tricky. I think what I'm reacting to is the collective jerk-off motion at Westbrook numbers and the the notion that this is all stat padding and him doing it in an unhealthy way because I think what he gives that OKC team on a nightly basis like has a lot of value. And when you look back, the year he lost in the playoffs, he was on a team where the pieces didn't quite fit. Like, I don't know. I mean, I understand Oladipo is good, but Oladipo's game is not the type of game that I would pair with a player like Westbrook. And it wasn't even then. Even that was before he went and had this, like, career renaissance in Indiana. Um and I just think, you know, he, he he's lost. played with some awful good players, including prime Kevin Durant and not done it and, and well, not and not been able to not translate done it necessarily. I don't love Westbrook and I wouldn't want him on my team. But I think like he made the Western Conference finals year after year and they came very, very close to because of Kevin. Well, because, not because of, of Westbrook, they're not doing it since Kevin left. I'll tell you that. And I think a lot of times he got in Kevin's way and kept that team from being how good they actually could be. Yeah. And his defenders will fight that to the death and say, no way, you know, Kevin would come up small too, but uh, lots of their problems in terms of stagnation, my turn, your turn, the issues that they were working through back then were on Westbrook. And, uh, you know, he's had issues with turnovers, decision-making in big moments, shot selection in big moments. There's no question. Year after year after year after year. Yeah. Do you play golf? 
God, no, man. I, I would <laughs> I would never be able to keep it together on the golf course, first of all, because I'd be terrible and I'd just get so frustrated. But I'd be the guy who'd be swearing and, like, you know, smacking his, uh, you know, golf club against the tree and just quitting on, like, the third hole. Okay. There, there's no way. All right. Well, in addition to our planned retirement in Utah, I think we definitely need to play golf together at some point this summer uh, just to see what happens because I don't really play golf either. But my analogy for Westbrook in the playoffs is if if you do play golf, sometimes you can grip the club too tight and swing too hard and it is disastrous. And you kind of have to know to just like swing loose, keep it natural or whatever. See, now I'm not a golfer, so I have no idea what I'm talking about. But when you grip it too hard, things don't go well. And that has been Russ in the playoffs over the last five or six years. And that criticism is super fair. I also think that the the he hasn't really had a winning hand over the last few years in part like Paul George wasn't really built for war last year maybe that's changed now um but I just watched him Thursday night against Lillard and um you know Lillard is someone who has a 100% approval rating around the NBA and and Westbrook for some reason hasn't over the last few seasons and I don't necessarily think that's fair because you can ask a lot of questions about the way Lillard has fared in the playoffs and what the way he's guarded and um, and the way he's been contained at, at the highest levels of basketball. And he is one of the most impressive superstars we have. So I'm not criticizing him at all. Like every story about Damian Lillard, I talked to Yusuf Nurkic about Lillard earlier this week. Like he's phenomenal. I'm just saying there are fair questions with a lot of guys. Okay. Let, let me ask you this though. I agree with what you just said. I think that Lillard faces less national heat than Westbrook by a mile. Yeah. But don't we also collectively view Westbrook as a better player than Lillard? Like, yeah. And, maybe and so that's I think that's fair. some of it, right? It's just like, you know, Westbrook's got the crown a little bit. So that's why he's facing the criticism because he's been elevated to this, you know, top five, top six level of a player for a lot of his career. Uh, and Lillard's just kind of always been, you know, a cup below, right? Yeah, and look, I would much rather have Lillard on my favorite team than Russell Westbrook because watching Russ and what and watching his flaws night after night would probably drive me insane as a basketball fan, um, whereas Lillard is a joy even when he loses. Like, he lost that, that Thunder game, but um, watching him try to make it work for Portland was awesome. So I don't know if I necessarily have a point here. I do think that we should all acknowledge that Westbrook is still incredible and someone we're going to be looking back on in 20 years and say, like, there weren't many guys we've ever seen built the way Westbrook was. Um, but Well, real quick, I have just a nitpick from Pete's question. People do not view Oscar Robertson as an untouchable basketball legend. I think he's viewed as like the the curmudgeon, the guy who's always talking you know, <laughs> crap about the current generation, a guy whose statistics are from an era where the competition wasn't as good, just like you know Pete pointed out, yeah, uh, you know in his in his question. So I actually think like Westbrook has a chance to be remembered more fondly. I think Westbrook ultimately will be remembered more like Iverson than anybody yes. else, where like he's the ultimate cult hero. Where if you were a fan of his, you know, if he shows up at a Thunder game 20 years from now, you know, standing ovation when he gets his jersey retired, there's going to be tears in the audience. Like, that's how he's going to be remembered. Yeah. And I don't think Oscar Robertson captured basketball fans in that way that I know of. And certainly his legacy has not kind of aged that way. Like, when they bring him out 
for the uh, you know the various celebrations. Like the way that Bill Russell is treated versus the way that Oscar Robertson gets treated is completely different. Yeah, I mean, uh, Oscar the Big O is is clearly a legend whose whose resume is pretty unimpeachable. But you're right that his public persona has kind of taken on a a second life as the cranky old guy who's constantly shitting on like today's game uh, which is unfortunate but you know whatever I don't hold that against him I, I'm sure I will be doing the same thing when I'm 75 years old the uh the Westbrook as Iverson thing is dead on and that that is how he'll be remembered because with both Iverson and Westbrook almost every criticism is fair and accurate and most of what their believers say about them and the the power that they had and the impact that they made on the game is also accurate. So, um, and the culture too. I mean, Westbrook is a, a legit, the fashion icon stuff like used to be a joke on the runway. Yeah. And that dude really changed the NBA. You know, I mean, like Iverson changed the way everybody dressed, acted, what they wore, the arm sleeves, the headbands. Uh, the Reebok sneakers. I mean, Iverson was so cool, he made Reebok cool. That's crazy. I mean, that's <laughs> mind-blowing. But you look at Westbrook, it's not like he made these like neon vests cool for everybody else, but he took the NBA a completely different direction, fashion-wise, style-wise, you know, during the podiums and all that. And that's going to be a big part of what he's remembered for, too. Yeah. You know what Russ has never been able to do, though, unfortunately? Uh, win at the highest level or play with a purpose? <laughs> yes. Well, those two things, but also he's never been able to make Jordan Brand cool, okay? And it's very sad oh. what's happened to Jordan Brand over the last four or five years. But I feel like Russ's shoe line is almost a, a metaphor for the state of Jordan Brand as a whole. Like his space boots, like I want to like whatever shoes Russ has, but... um the design team is really not bringing it on that front. So maybe that maybe things will improve over the next few years. Well, I, I look forward to you sharing this with the Jordan brand the next time you meet with them rather than throwing me under the bus for uh, <laughs> you know, my, my James Harden for MVP pick, MVP pick a few years ago, which uh, obviously lit that room on fire. So yeah, a bunch. The, the podcast was significantly less popular at that point. But for anyone who doesn't remember or wasn't listening to us at this point. Um, it's treason. It, it was just pure treason. <laughs> I mean, it was just the backstabbing of all backstabbing. In 2016, both Ben and I were in New York City and we met with people from Jordan Brand over at Sports Illustrated and Golliver gets in the room and suddenly starts talking up Kawhi Leonard as if he's just been like a Kawhi believer all along because obviously Kawhi was with Jordan at that point. They're planning to roll out this big campaign. And so I let him go on for three or four minutes before I had to just make the point that Ben has had been a Harden evangelist all year long and was planning to vote Harden for MVP. And um, it was so it's like going into the like the PLO and just starting to talk about how how this guy loves Israel. That's like really <laughs> <laughs> what it is, you know, it's like the most unconscionable thing you could do to someone you care about look man you're all about accountability i was just keeping you accountable for your own takes and the way you saw the nba in 2016 um but with that oh they also repped westbrook too so you were probably laying it on thick talking about how great russ's triple doubles were you know whatever it took to get in good with the jordan people sadly i uh it all came crashing down <laughs> because of me but 
Yeah, real sadly. You were sitting over there with a huge smile on your face, smirking great. at me, realizing that you ruined my career. I really appreciate that. No question. The highlight of the 2016 MVP debate was ruining your reputation within Jordan Brand. Moving on, though, Thaddeus says, who would you rather give a big contract to, Kyrie Irving or D'Angelo Russell? Ben, do you have thoughts here? I think this is actually a better question than it seems. Uh, I think it's Russell. I don't think it's that good of a question. What's the what's the argument for Kyrie? Well, I think here's the thing. If you're the Celtics, paying Kyrie makes sense because of his standing within the league and his ability to recruit superstars and potentially recruit Anthony Davis. So while I think there are a lot of red flags, it makes sense if, if you've already got a really good team and you want, you want to go chase a title and that like Kyrie gets you a step closer in some very important ways, both because of what he can provide in the playoffs and what he can provide as a recruiter. However, yeah, I want to see, I want to see this recruiting success first, to be honest, with maybe you, because if I'm a fellow superstar, it's a lot like how I look at LeBron right now. Man, I really respect what he can do on the court. This guy's skill level is off the charts. He's a special basketball player. I'm staying 2,000 miles away from it. I don't want to be on a team that just sways based on Kyrie Irving's mood swings or sways based on how LeBron's trying to like you know pull the puppet master strings. Uh, I'd rather just be in a more stable environment. Uh, is that a crazy take? Or do we need to update this idea of Kyrie as this master recruiter who's a magnet for talent? Um, I mean, look, we'll we'll see what happens this summer. Given the state of the league and the restlessness among various superstars who who could reshape all this shit by themselves, like, I have no idea how it's going to play out. I would just say that as someone who I'm, I have never really been that big of a Kyrie believer and you know through the first 75 percent of his career kind of thought of him as an empty stats guy kind of tough to handle off the court not my he just wasn't my favorite I didn't like interviewing him and I just he rubbed me the wrong way in a lot of different respects but uh, over the last few years as I've started to talk to more people the one thing I've heard over and over again is how much his peers love him. And um, and that's as a basketball player, but also just as yeah. like a guy in the offseason. And I think that's... Well, I've heard that story too, but I'm just saying like, are we sure about that? Let's, I mean, if he's lucky, he plays with two of the most mature star level guys with, you know, Al Horford and Gordon Hayward, because they're not going to be popping shots. And obviously Hayward's going through his own stuff too. But these younger guys, I mean, Tatum, Brown smart, whoever else you want to say on that roster. They don't look like they're having a great time playing with Kyrie Irving. I can't imagine if you call Jalen Brown, if you're, you know, superstar X, Anthony Davis, doing your background, how's Kyrie as a teammate? (laughs) How's Kyrie as a leader? That's not coming back positively, Andrew. And so I'm just saying the conventional wisdom is what you're laying out. I think we need to take a second look at that. Yeah, maybe you're right. Look, I I have no idea. I I can't get in the mind of Anthony Davis right now. Um, I'll I'll watch another episode of The Shop and see where we are in July. The The Knicks thing, though, and that's why this is an interesting question. If I were the Knicks, because of Kyrie's injury history and because of the money that he's going to command as, I believe he's like nine years into his career, so he's at the 30% max and not the 35% max. Um, but like that's a lot of money to commit to a guy who hasn't really been healthy hasn't shown that he can win 
and sustain excellence on his own. I mean, I, I think if you look at the Cavs uh, seasons with him, like a lot of the, the stability was derived from LeBron and not Kyrie. And obviously we've seen that in Boston. So like, I wouldn't think it's crazy if the Knicks and it's going to be Kevin Durant's choice. And if Kyrie wants to play there, that's how it's going to play. But like D'Angelo Russell on a max might be a blessing in disguise if that's where we end up in July. I think it's a pretty simple decision. I mean, the age factor is huge. If you're looking for this long term of a commitment, you know you're getting good years with Russell compared to Kyrie's question marks. The injury factor that you just laid out for sure. Um, I also think just, you know, personality wise, like there's there's egos on both sides. Yeah. Um, but I also think that there's still a level of a hunger for a guy like Russell where he's t- trying to prove who he is. I see him out there campaigning for most improved player, you know, bless his heart, you know, basically declaring that he's going to win it. You know, congratulations. He's not my favorite player, but I just think he's got fewer risks. He's easier to manage and probably easier to build a roster around uh, than Kyrie Irving at this stage. I just don't think you can influence Kyrie one way or the, the other at this point he just is who he is you yeah know what I mean he's gonna do his little Kobe Bryant post-game spiel and then sit out the next game just like he did you know on Tuesday and Wednesday this week <laughs> and you know fantastic like let somebody else bother with that and I'm firmly in the camp that like the idea of Kyrie and AD together is a best case scenario for the Celtics for sure but yeah. I don't think it's the worst case scenario in the world if they just don't have both those guys and they're going forward building around Tatum I think there, if that's how it plays out, there will be a lot of mocking of the Celtics for how the whole rebuilding plan worked, the moves yeah. that they made and all of that. I don't think it's going to be nearly as bad as it would look if that's how it plays. Yeah, um, I disagree. I think it's a disaster for the Celtics. They've been angling for this little two or three year title window regardless. But I, di- I think that's how but it's going to I know, work. but like... They already made their bed when they when they traded for Kyrie and they kind of s- built everything around him, right? And yeah. like, do you really want to commit five years to that plan? I wouldn't. Yeah, it's not going well. What is the evidence that's going to go better in the future? You know, you look back at his career; he might have had one consistent season the whole way. You mm-hmm. know, c- contributing to winning prior to LeBron arriving, it was all empty stats, like you mentioned. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I don't. Man. I don't see an evolution. I don't see a post. Uh, a post-prime evolution from Kyrie where, you know, the light bulb clicks on. Uh, I, I think he is who he is. All I'll say is that I have a tortured relationship with the Celtics and am both believer and hater. And I don't know how I really feel about the Celtics, but my the Celtics are going to be fine take is looking fairly solid right now. And I can already see the long articles out of Boston about how the season was saved on the West Coast road trip, they're beginning to stabilize. And I I still, if I had to bet, would say Anthony Davis and Kyrie are going to be in Boston by this time in July. Um, But the D'Angelo... And and that's a different proposition. I mean, if you're paying Kyrie knowing you're getting Anthony Davis, that's not the simple Kyrie or D'Angelo question, right? Like, Mm -hmm. that's more of a package deal. It's like, who are you getting if you're bringing, uh, you know, D'Angelo Russell with you? But... I don't know, man. I feel like uh, Kyrie's not going to be in Boston next year. I, I think that the the lows, but also just the inconsistency of it, uh, portends a, a divorce. Yeah. I, D'Angelo would probably be a better basketball fit next to Kevin Durant also. And that's the part where it's like, not only is the personality mixture in New York with this hypothetical super team, like, really tenuous um but also the their games 
don't seem like a natural fit with Kyrie and KD, but D'Angelo as a shooter off the ball could be pretty solid. Although he needs the ball in his in his hands a lot as well, so I don't know. Um, what? How should we end here? We should end by saying Kevin Durant has the best point guard he could ever possibly play with in Steph Curry. And if he turns that guy in after surviving the Russell Westbrook experience for D'Angelo Russell or Kyrie Irving, that's a crime against basketball. That's how we should end. (laughs) Okay, fine. (laughs) I disagree. I totally understand why he would feel like he wants to leave to go be happy somewhere else. But uh, that's a great place to end. End of podcast. It's been a long week, and we will circle back next week. I want to talk about the following things with you, okay? So here are some homework for you over the weekend and stuff we didn't get to today. Oh, here we go. All right. Number one, I want to talk about who the second best team in the NBA is um, because I think it's pretty interesting. And I also think that this Warriors team, I have been very much on team don't freak out about the state of Golden State. Um, it's not worded well, whatever it's Friday. Who cares? I, what I'm saying is I haven't been worried about the Warriors all along. And I think a lot of the yeah, hand wringing has been overblown, but there are real questions. Katie's trying to push your buttons though, Andrew. Katie's really trying to push your buttons with the sniping at Steve Kerr and everything else. There's, there's no doubt about it. He wants you to worry about the Warriors. I, well, it's not just that they, they are so thin outside that top five or six that like one injury is really going to be an issue for these guys. They they don't look the same whatsoever if you take Clay Thompson off the court. Same deal with Steph obviously. I just they're not quite as unbeatable and inevitable as I think a lot of people have assumed over the course of this season. So Anyways, well, that's why they got Bogut. I mean, come on. Like, why, why are you <laughs> right. why are you panicking? They got Bogut. Bogut's on deck. Yeah, like Boogie in the playoffs is going to be a mess, man. Um, so anyways, we'll talk about that. We'll talk about the second best team. I'm also, I don't know, man. I am beginning to feel like we might need to start selling off some Bucks stock. I'm still, we're not selling any Giannis Inc. stock, but the Milwaukee Bucks are a separate entity and people are getting awful high, okay? Andrew, I'm, I'm cutting you off right here because it's time for the emailers to email us at openfloormail <laughs> at gmail.com. Openfloormail at gmail.com. Last week, Andrew, you know, genius brains telling us don't overreact to March results. This week, he's saying the Warriors and the Bucks are both toast based off of a couple no, of No, 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 no. I'm selling on, the Bucks Andrew. based on how high everyone else is on the Bucks. okay? We need to tone it down with them as the second best team in basketball and a, an analog to the 15 Warriors, like Team Joy. Well, I just, I don't know, man. Anyways, we'll- They're still getting like- they're still getting 5% of the attention they deserve. So I think you need to be preparing for more coverage of the Bucks. This is not the best kept secret in the NBA anymore. These guys are a juggernaut. They're awesome. Also, guys, check us out. Open Floor uh, on Apple Podcasts. Search for those two words. Find our page. Scroll down. Uh, it'll say, you know, rate and review. Tap five stars. It's just that easy. Also, follow me on Instagram at Ben.Golliver. We will bring the lantern back uh, next week. Our schedule has got thrown off a little bit this week. So be sure to participate in that. Andrew, until next week when we're going to run down this long list of topics that you can't wait to discuss and we're probably going to yell about it quite a bit. We're also going to talk about the <laughs> we're also going to talk about the third seed in the West and the Nuggets and uh and just to be clear, Giannis is still the MVP and the best player in basketball. So, we stay wherever we stand, we stand with Giannis and the Bucks are going to be fine. 
All right. End of week. Ben, I'll talk to you. I will talk to you. Go to a state park, a local park, whatever park you want to find. (laughs) I'll talk to you next week. Municipal park.